U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. It's angered China. But maybe that's a good thing. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Matt Ganesta. And I'm Shelley Zhang. And joining us once again today is Germont Lailari. He's a retired U.S. Air Force foreign area officer specializing in the Middle East and Europe, as well as irregular warfare and missile defense. He's currently a Taiwan fellow at the National Zhengzhou University in Taipei. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So last week, uh, U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi did a tour of Asia. Uh, she stopped in a bunch of countries, but uh, she might have made a mistake because one of the countries she visited wasn't actually a country. Um, I don't think that was a mistake, and I think it was a, actually a productive uh, action that she did. So her stop in Taiwan. Well, what did she? Firstly, what did she do in Taiwan? Well, first, first and foremost, is she came here. I mean, that's the most important thing. You know. Uh, even though uh, she, she spent about 18 hours here. Uh, I think uh, when Newt Gingrich came here in the late 90s, he only spent three hours here. Uh, so she one-upped him on that. Uh, she met with President Tsai and the legislature in Taiwan. I don't believe Newt Gingrich uh, met the president at the time. I think it was uh, supposedly a non-official visit, but her visit was also non-official, but she met everybody. Um, she made statements about um, Taiwan's democracy, about uh, human rights. She noted how Taiwan had uh, done a great job during COVID. And I think all these statements that she made were actually very powerful because they actually were not only directed at the Taiwan, Taiwanese population, but uh, to China because we know that China has a zero COVID policy and it's disastrous. They have no democracy. They have no human rights. So she hit all the things that are really painful points from my point of view, that uh, China fears pe people understanding what they, what they bring to the table. So uh, in that, in that respect, I think she did a great job. Yeah. I mean, she didn't really talk about China. She just no. kind of talked about Taiwan and let the rest go unsaid. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, anyone reading that, uh, you know, could easily interpret that as being, you know, go Taiwan, but also, oh, China is also in the picture. And, oh, China has no human rights. China has a terrible COVID policy. And China is not a democracy, you know. So I think, I think uh, the CCP understood the message. I enjoyed her visit to the National Human Rights Museum specifically since, uh, you know, that's kind of a pointed jab at the CCP not acknowledging any of the the human rights atrocities in their past, like let alone the current ones that they're currently doing, but uh, versus Taiwan having gone from this authoritarian like one party dictatorship essentially into a democracy now and just kind of highlighting that. Yeah, and I think she also met uh, at, at, at that museum. I think she met with uh, human rights activists. I think there was a, a person from Hong Kong. Uh, I think there was a person from mainland China. 
There was there's like a Tibetan, and then there was a, <laughs> a, a she got a two for one with a Uyghur who was also yeah. a Tiananmen activist. Work case she was there, so that yeah. that was both, and so, then <laughs> really just hit hit all of the different ones. A Hong Kong bookseller yeah. who got kidnapped in mainland China. Yeah, just yeah. a Taiwanese person who had been uh, you know sentenced to prison in China. So yeah, just almost everybody. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, interestingly enough, as you probably you know you're very familiar with the concept of the five poisons of, uh, of, of, of China. And those people represented each of those five poisons, the independence movement of Taiwan, Tibet, the Uyghurs, uh, Falun Gong. I'm not sure that they were there, but the idea is that, you know, all these groups of people are discriminated against in China. And these are the five poisons that they have to deal with in China because there is no freedom. Yeah. I think she did miss Falun Gong. I, I didn't read anything about that. I didn't see anything about that either. Uh, I definitely know there was a Tibetan uh, government exile representative yeah. there. But yeah. but four out of five is still, you know, it's, it's pretty solid for the for the poisons. And it seems pretty, I, I mean, I don't, like, there have been a lot of other congressional delegations to uh, Taiwan, but I don't think, like, they have done something as pointed as going to this human rights museum and meeting with these activists who have been imprisoned in China. Yes, exactly. I, and I think, you know, no matter what people say about uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi, I think I think over her career, she has been consistently focused on those issues. Uh, each time she's uh, gone someplace uh, and, uh, you know, in Asia, she's has been focusing on human rights. So it's not like a new thing, like she wanted to, you know, make a new splash. It's consistent with her background. Yeah, I mean, she... She went to Tiananmen Square in '91, I believe, and had like a democracy banner. So that's a correct. You know, that's a that's a actually a pretty good solid track record, especially for someone in politics. Exactly. So you know, I think uh, all the things that she did and all the things she said were well choreographed and well planned, um, and uh, and then she left. Well, one one group that didn't like her trip to Taiwan seems to be the Biden administration. Correct. So, you know, what happened there? So, interesting scenario. So, President Biden used the Defense Department's comment that it wasn't a good time to go as his comment about her visit. And we all know that the Defense Department is under the executive. So it's the executives quoting the executive saying Pelosi shouldn't go. I think I think there's um, there's some tension between the two of them um, because, as you know, that the President Biden's ratings are very low. Obviously, uh, Speaker Pelosi is very interested in getting Democrats reelected in the fall. And so I think that uh, part of that has to do with the fact that she wants to try to make the Democrats look like they're doing something in the world. Um, so she can do that. And I think part of the problem uh, in, 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 uh, in the PRC is that people, some people don't understand how a country uh, can have leaders doing different things than the party wants them to do. So, as you know, in the United States, we have a division of 
powers. We have the legislature, we have the executive, and then we have the Supreme Court. And each one of those can do what they want. Um, so a lot of people, I think, especially in, in China, were trying to connect U.S. government policy with Speaker Pelosi, and she doesn't have to follow those rules. Uh, in addition to that, um, just before the uh, Trump administration left office, uh, there was a bill that was passed that encouraged high-level um, government representatives to go to Taiwan. Uh, so, in fact, she was actually uh, following up on that, in, in a sense. So you're saying Nancy Pelosi was doing what Donald Trump wanted? <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess yeah. the bill was passed by Congress <laughs> first before Trump signed it. But, yeah. Well, but uh, I'm sure Nancy Pelosi was involved in that in that legislation. She, you know, she's the Speaker of the House, so she knows she knows where all the bills are going, and she's the one who manages all that. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not so sure she would agree with you, but but <laughs> uh, by, uh, by default, yeah, she she uh, she did follow up on that, but. You know, I think uh, I think her whole trip in general was uh, in, uh, a good a good thing for especially for Taiwan, and I think it also you know I think I think uh, just maybe moving into the idea of um, China's reaction, I think uh, China's reaction has caused uh, a lot of problems for them. Uh, it's unified. It's helped unify Taiwan. It's helped. Uh, uh, people around the world understand what Taiwan is. Why is it important? It's it's drawing them into the limelight. Um, it's also reinforced uh, U.S. public opinion for Taiwan. And I think the biggest uh, nightmare for China is to is for people to say, "Oh, Russia invades Ukraine because they want to. China wants to invade Taiwan because they want to." So I guess. Taiwan and Ukraine are the same, and therefore we should support them. So I think that uh, the more China you know, uses arguments that uh, don't make sense to the rest of the world, the more the people have become supportive of Taiwan. Hmm. So let's talk about specifically some of the PRC's reactions to the visit. They had uh, been threatening before the visit that there would be consequences don't uh, cross, don't play with people who play with fire, get burned, like vague, kind of pretty, right. pretty standard. Pretty vague, except, except for Hu Jin oh. from the Global Times who... Yeah, but I think that you can't really take what Hu Jin says as like policy, right? You can't, but he, he had some comment about like China should shoot down her plane, which is was a little bit extreme and obviously was never going to happen, but I think a lot of people freaked out about that. I don't know if they actually freaked out or if it was just like a nice headline. It's a good headline. Yeah. Yeah, that that should be the headline for this podcast. <laughs> that, that 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 what that you know, China could shoot down. I mean, obviously it's a little late for that. <laughs> Retroactively but shoot I, down her plane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you remember in early April of this year, she was going to come to Taiwan. And the global the former Global Times editor uh, he said similar things when she came, when she was going to come to uh, Taiwan. Uh, he talked about shooting her plane down or or uh, or flying jets over Taiwan. Uh, it, it, it's it's kind of old news if if you've been following what he's been saying. Um, 
So, and of course she got COVID and, and couldn't make it. And then, uh, then she went off to get a selfie with uh, Zelensky. But so I think this time everything was in place for her visit. Uh, I think that she was safe in the, in, in, in the air. Um, and I don't think that the uh, PLA would have or could have shot her plane down. And oh, by the way, her plane is a U.S. Air Force plane. And if they shoot down a U.S. Air Force plane, that's not an attack on Taiwan. That's an attack on the United States. So it's not, you know, uh, there are a lot, a lot of things he says that don't make sense. And if they did, they would have severe consequences. Uh, so do you want to talk about the we talk about the, the different kinds of uh, comments made before her trip? Uh, we're all threatening. And, and of course, luckily, she came and the threats fell through. Um, I think there's an expression, uh, the Russians used to say that the Chinese would always say something like uh, the, the last threat, China's last threat, you know, final threat. Uh, and then each time they did made a final threat, it, they never fell through with it. So this is a, a common thing that the, that the Chinese do uh, is make threats, but not necessarily do anything about it. So it's it's like Final Fantasy, the video game. Like they have the first one, and it's not the Final Fantasy, but then they keep going. There's a second and third, and there's like 16, 20 of them now. I mean, it's basically the same. <laughs> so the concept. final threat. The final threat. The final warning. Yeah. Uh, well, given that they have this track record, why do you think um, this particular trip got blown up so much uh, in terms of? Like the coverage, I think like for the last two weeks, basically the only China news that anybody's been talking about was, will she or won't she go to Taiwan? What'll happen? You know, and then when she did go, it was very much framed as like she defied China. Like it, it was interesting to see some of this messaging that looked a lot like, you know, Chinese Communist Party propaganda coming through the Western media. Right. So I, I, I also think there's a tension in China because, as you mentioned, there are there are a lot of uh, I mean, there are a lot of uh, super nationalists in, in China and, and they want they want to invade Taiwan. I mean, these are the, the you know, the regular, let's say, uh, Communist Party officials or, or just people in China, you know, are super nationalists. And so I think. Uh, the CCP also has the reverse job of, of, of making sure people don't get really too excited because they don't they don't want, you know, they want to control the outcome. So if they don't want war, they really don't want people, you know, doing things on their own to start a war. Um, so I think some of those comments coming out of uh, the, the Chinese press uh, were the super nationalists pushing, trying to push uh, the CCP to do so, to do something to, to, to do an invasion. Uh, but I don't think um, an invasion was planned. I had a, another interview where someone asked me, well, why don't you think there was going to be an invasion? I said, well, first of all, um, we have a large number of U.S. ships in the area. They're on alert. Uh, Rip Pack is just finishing with 38 other ships from other countries nearby. We have five flat decks, which are like uh, we had two aircraft carriers and a couple of helicopter carriers in the area. So this is not the time to do something because we're ready for it. I mean, the idea behind uh, doing something is to surprise people, to uh, get them off guard. And in this time we were, we were ready. So I think also the Pelosi and the other, the rest of the delegation, they timed it right uh, in terms of 
having sort of maximum force available should something happen. And I think any thoughts of, of invasion were deterred, it, even if there were, even if there weren't any. But if there were any thoughts, uh, the the U.S. was ready, and also the Taiwanese military is also involved in exercises right now. So everybody's you know ready. Uh, and so I don't think that the, that the invasion was ever was ever going to happen. Yeah, I mean, like, is there something that the U.S. could do that would make the Chinese Communist Party invade before they're ready? Okay, so there's a list in the um, annual report uh, that uh, Congress puts out uh, and also the, the Pentagon puts out that lists things that they think would cause... Uh, the CCP to order the PLA to invade. For example, one is um, if uh, foreign forces establish a base in Taiwan, if the Taiwanese uh, get nuclear weapons, if Taiwan declares independence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a list that we think will cause the PRC or the CCP to do something, but we're actually not 100% sure that those are are truly items. Those are based on statements that we've heard in the past about, about uh, the CCP's uh, threats to invade. Um, and so those would be cases. So if like tomorrow, Taiwan said, uh, we're going to build a nuclear weapon, then based on our assumptions, that could be a cause for uh, the invasion. But isn't the CCP planning to invade anyway, like regardless of what Taiwan or the U.S. does? Well, they would prefer to not invade and have Taiwan just say, hey, we're part of China and uh, come on over, buddies from the CCP. That's what they hope, but that's not going to happen, obviously, in the near term. So, yes, I mean, in reality, they, they, they probably will invade, but um, most analysts um, evaluating the Chinese military say that China's ability still is not there yet. They could do it, uh, but they wouldn't do it very graces, uh, you know, gracefully, and it wouldn't it wouldn't be very pretty, and and they probably would uh, suffer a lot. Uh, most people put the prediction of a couple of years out, uh, as you as you as you've uh, quoted before, uh, Admiral Davidson before he he retired, he predicted twenty twenty seven would be the 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 time when the Chinese military would probably be fully ready for some kind of invasion. But even if they're fully ready, they might not choose to do an invasion. So again, most analysts today say they're not, they're not really ready to do a good job at, at invasion. They would have a, a lot of losses and it could become a long drawn out war, which is what, what they don't want. So when the Biden administration said ahead of Pelosi's trip that this is not the right time, like, isn't, isn't it actually the perfect time? I think so. Um, I also think that, uh, I, as I mentioned, there's a tension between President Biden and, and, and Pelosi. And the Democrats, you know, are not happy that Biden's ratings are so low. Um, so, you know, it was interesting that, that Biden, President Biden announced the, the, uh, the assassination of, of uh, Ayman Zawahiri, the number one guy in Al-Qaeda, uh, just a day or two uh, before uh, Pelosi uh, went on her trip. Uh, so, you know, I think there's uh, there is some tension about, you know, I want attention. 
I don't want, you know, I'm jealous of Pelosi's attention and what she's getting. Do you I, I don't I don't see how Biden thinks that a CIA drone strike is going to help his approval ratings. <laughs> but well, uh, anyway. it, it, you know, it it's uh, you remember uh, President Biden was Vice President Biden when President Obama uh, took out uh, ordered the taking out of Bin Laden. Obama got a lot of positive kudos for doing that, and so you know, I guess each president has to get his equivalent. Uh, I mean, even Trump uh, got the credit of taking out uh, Soleimani, uh, the IRGC, head of the IRGC in, in Baghdad. Uh, so it seems like a trend that everybody has to have their, uh, you know, bad guy taken out during their term. So who is President Harris planning to take out? Um, I guess the list of bad guys is getting smaller and smaller. Uh, That's okay. She'll, she'll figure it out. I have faith in her. Yes. I, yeah. I'm. I mean, I do wonder, because you're saying this is possibly a domestic political issue um, between the Biden administration and Pelosi, but the way that the Pelosi's trip was handled by the executive, like not just Biden saying that, um, you know, the military didn't, or the DOD didn't think it was a good idea, but then also he got COVID, so he didn't, he didn't really say anything else for the next two weeks, but there was this there were a lot of leaks from like anonymous Biden administration officials to like the New York Times or something like that, kind of hand wringing over how this is a bad idea and it's really risky. I mean, that seems like it just gives the Chinese Communist Party an opening to escalate the situation. I, I just don't I, I guess I feel like I don't understand why they thought that was a good idea. Yeah, so some some people think uh that, uh, oh, not some people, but uh, I guess the outside observer would say that that the U.S. government, the executive and the legislature were sending mixed messages to the CCP. I mean, that's clearly what was going on. Um, as you know, there are people in in, uh, in, the, in the U.S. government who uh, uh, don't want to scare or are scared by words coming out of the out of the CCP. So. Um, they don't want to ruffle feathers. And as we saw, um, the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, uh, when uh, President Trump was leaving office, uh, you know, called his counterpart in China to, to, to tell him that, you know, if the U.S. was going to attack them, that he would give them a call. And we have the same, uh, almost same kind of uh, attitude today, where just like he did uh, during the Trump administration, I think... He did the same thing in effect uh, by saying oh, it's not a good time. Well, it's never a good time to piss off the uh, the Chinese if if you're always worried about uh, what they're thinking. I mean, we have to do what we think is right. You know, it's not based on what they think that we should do. Um, you know, the classic term that uh, I refer to is kowtow, kurtow in Chinese, which is you know the bowing uh, that the uh, King Dynasty made uh, people do be before they went to uh, to meet the emperor. Well, I think the CCP wants the rest of the world to curtail to anything they say. Uh, so uh, when they say something, they want people to jump. They don't want people to ignore them. They want people to follow what they say. And if they don't follow what they say, they they want uh, people to get punished. You know, like little babies. You know, like I didn't get my way, so I'm going to slap you because you didn't follow what I said. Uh, 
Um, and I think that this is their their style, their attitude. And, and, and I think, in effect, the CCP has has taken over what the Qing Dynasty once uh, wanted their vassal states to do: is curtail to them and do everything that they want to do. And when people don't want to do it, then you know they 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 scream and moan and they try to punish them. Yeah, that was why I think it was interesting to see like Western media reports, like framing it as like Pelosi defies China as if the Chinese regime has the final say over who should go to Taiwan or not. Right. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the Reagan administration with the six assurances, it, uh, this was a backlash to the Carter administration. Uh, the six assurances says we will not consult with China on arms sales to Taiwan. They, you know, in other words, they, China does not have any say in what we sell or, uh, or negotiate with Taiwan. Um, and there's a whole list of, uh, of them. Uh, so in, uh, we've had different kinds of administrations with different attitudes towards Taiwan and China. Uh, and so I think in this case, we have the legislature being a bit more, um, let's say, uh, forceful and the current uh, the, and the president's uh, administration being a bit in the kowtow arena, you know. Uh, uh, so I think this the, there is a there is a tension. It's not clear uh, if the Biden administration will uh, take take up what uh, Speaker Pelosi did. Now the other thing we don't know is, uh, I mean, some of this you know getting into kind of a conspiratorial arena. We don't really know uh, how much of this stuff was was uh, intentional, you know, played out, uh, you know, making Biden look weak and looking, making Pelosi look strong. But we also don't know what uh, President Biden and Speaker Pelosi uh, said to each other about uh, what messages they were going to be delivering to each of the countries she went to. Um, so there could, there's a, there could be some behind the scenes uh, um, negotiations going on that we're not aware of because, uh, you know, it's not public information. Uh, but we all we always have to consider that there's other kinds of messages being uh, sent that are not public. Um, and also, uh, as you recall, uh, since you mentioned uh, President Biden's COVID, uh, recall also he had a conversation with Xi Jinping before Pelosi's visit to uh, Asia. Uh, and again, we don't really have a clear idea of what was discussed there. I mean, clearly, uh, I think that... Uh, I'm sure that Xi Jinping said something like this. Uh, we understand that Speaker Pelosi's uh, coming. We don't like it, but we're not going to start a war. That's what I think. And President Biden said, well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad you're saying that. Uh, and then Xi Jinping says, but once you once she leaves, we're going to do a bunch of military things that you might not be happy about. So I, I think there were some, some uh, discussions, that, again, that we don't know about, uh, but it's clear that uh, everyone seems to be uh, pretty calm about what what happened. It didn't seem like there was a lot of bluster when she was here. Uh, once she left, then things got a little more exciting. Yeah, some of the messages she delivered about U.S. support of Taiwan seemed quite strong, like saying that the U.S. was like ironclad in supporting democracy in Taiwan and around the world, and saying like the message she was bringing was about you know how the U.S. was you know, supporting Taiwan, et cetera. Um, do, do you think that basically it's it's more possible for her to say that kind of stuff than for President Biden to say it? 
Yes, but again, I think if you look at clearly at the, you're right, her language is strong, but I don't think that she crossed the line that uh, everyone's worried about. I mean, she never said that Taiwan was an independent country. No. Right. So, I mean, she, you know, she came up to the line, so to speak, but I don't think she crossed it. And I think she also said uh, that, you know, she, she's not contradicting any of the U.S. government policies towards Taiwan, uh, which, which means that also we don't think that China should use violence to take over Taiwan. And we're against that. And, you know, we're strongly against that. Um, but, it does, uh, you know, also our policy is that uh, China uh, is a country and Taiwan kind of isn't. Um, so uh, I think she can continue the, the idea of strategic ambiguity. I, uh, I think she did a good job of making it appear like she was going farther than that. But uh, I, I think that she stayed in the box. Yeah, I think there was an op-ed that they released in the Washington Post Pelosi and her delegation, and it basically said, you know, we're not violating the the U.S.'s one China policy. We're doing everything in line with the six insurances, the 1972 thing, and that we, you know, support the status quo, essentially. Correct. Yeah. I do think, though, it's interesting that the, the delegation included a lot of the, the senior Democrats from key um, House um, uh, committees, and uh, I think that that's something that would be interesting to pursue in terms of seeing what exactly those people uh, transmitted uh, to each of the different countries that, that she visited, because it's mainly, mainly been a Pelosi story. Um, and most of the, the information about these other delegates and what they did and what they talked about has been has been pretty muted. Um, right. I mean, it's also easy to forget that she visited mainly other countries on this trip including Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea, Japan. Um, what, yeah. what do you think her messages were to the leadership of those countries? So I didn't honestly didn't follow a lot of her other other trips because I was mo mostly focused on whether or not she was going to be coming. And I mean, and same for, boat uh, for the rest of the world. So <laughs> easy. Right, to... right. But I, 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 I do know, uh, you probably read this too, that um, – the South Korean uh, president uh, chose not to meet her and chose to go on vacation. Um, and he's the, he, he is newly elected. He's supposed to be right of center. Um, and uh, he's also mentioned uh, talk that if uh, North Korea launches more missiles or, or detonates another nuclear weapon, uh, that he might ask for um, uh, more U.S. aid, uh, another THAAD uh, a battery, for example, to detect missiles. And um, I think uh, he mentioned that uh, he might ask for the U.S. to deploy nuclear weapons either near or in his country. Uh, I mean, those are strong statements, but uh, not meeting Pelosi, uh, I think, was perceived by the South Korean population as being weak, on, uh, weak to China. Um, and... Uh, I think his rating dropped like like thirty percent, which is huge. Yeah, but he is very pro work life balance. <laughs> yeah, but you know, uh, so my argument to you would be: so if President Biden showed up to South Korea, do you think that he would 
he would uh, change his vacation time? I think so. If President Harris, uh, Vice, see, I was a Freudian slip. If his Vice President Harris had showed up, probably he would also um, take uh, uh, delay his vacation. So you know, number three, uh, you know, I think that's also uh, pretty credible that that he should have uh, made it made the effort, and I think the Korean people think so too. I'm curious how Pelosi's trip was perceived in Taiwan, since you're there right now. Uh, yes. Because there was a lot of hype in Western media, then uh, like just like a lot of this kind of nail biting coverage. Was it the same way in Taiwan, or how how was it seen? No, it was just another day in Taiwan. Uh, people were very calm. Uh, you know, it, if I had seen a shirt that said, uh, 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 you know, uh, been there. What's the expression? Been there, seen there. What's the been been there, done that. Yeah, been there, done that. T-shirt. That's what they. That's the the sense I got on Taiwan Taiwanese people. You know, uh, they've seen this all before. They're used to all the saber rattling that that China does uh, against Taiwan, uh, and the government here has been very accepting and low key and not hyping uh, the people up, uh, except that they kind of shown that the military here, the Taiwanese military is ready if, if something were to happen. Um, and so uh, I, I think that honestly, um, vast majority of Taiwanese people are, were not doing anything to, uh, different than they did a week before. And uh, I do know that there are some, uh, you know, foreigners here who were rattled um, and uh, were concerned because they've never been in a situation like this. But uh, the Taiwanese people were steady uh, going about their business. They weren't, uh, they didn't change their lifestyle because of Pelosi's visit. Uh, although it was like having a rock star here, you know, they, they did watch the news and, and they watched what was going on. Uh, there were a few people protesting in front of the uh, de facto U.S. Embassy here, um, mostly pro-communist type, type people. And so the press took pictures of them and made it sound like they were all over the place, but they were just like a dozen of them standing in front of the AIT area and, and screaming and yelling and that's it. So, you know, that's par for the course for, for a democracy, right? You have people demonstrating against whatever's going on. And, and it shows that, uh, you know, democracy is, is alive and well in Taiwan. So do you think that most people were generally supportive of Pelosi's visit? I'm asking because there was some analysis by um, some Western China experts about how like this is bad for Taiwan for Pelosi to go. No, I think I think uh, again. I I went to dinner uh, before this interview, um, and uh, uh, half the people there were Taiwanese, and I asked them that question. I said, "Well, you know, what is your thoughts about you know her visit? Should she have come and all this?" And, and all of them said, "No, we welcome all visitors. You know, it's great." Uh, you know, we, especially American senior uh, politicians, we like uh, to know that, that they care about us. And by coming here, uh, it shows that they care about us. And most uh, Taiwanese, uh, I've talked to some retired senior uh, government officials, and uh, they say that they, they, their perception is that Congress is very supportive of Taiwan. Uh, and the Biden administration is not as supportive. And so when con Congress, uh, when people from Congress and senators from the Senate come here, uh, it, you know, it's very visible that they're, they're, they're coming and they're, and they're continuously. Uh, whereas the senior officials from the 
the Biden administration are really not coming here. Um, so there is a there is a perception that the Congress is very uh, supportive of Taiwan and uh, the people like that. It's interesting because you're one of the only people to ever ask the Taiwanese people what they think about this. <laughs> well, I think it's important, you know, and I think it's the same thing applies to their defense needs. We got so many pundits in the, in the United States and, and you know, former defense officials telling telling uh, Taiwan, oh, you need this weapon. You don't need that weapon. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I have a strong background in the Middle East and, you know, uh, you know, Israelis know what they need to defend themselves, and Taiwanese know what they need to defend themselves. There are 24 million people here, and, and you know, there's enough of smart ones to know what they need. Uh, and there's only 9 million Israelis. So, you know, uh, by process of elimination, I, I assume that the Taiwanese know what they want, and, uh, and they, and they uh, express themselves. And the trend is that uh, the Taiwanese people, especially the youth, are more and more e- either, either status quo or more independence, uh, whereas the older older uh, generations uh, were not uh, so pro-independence or status quo. Uh, and so over time, more and more of the population is becoming status quo or independence. I think it's like if you t- take those two together, it's like 80 uh, percent, which is a lot. Taiwanese people you know, know they're in a they're, they're in a tight situation, but they also know that they have strengths. Uh, one of their one of their one of their strengths is democracy. I mean, the CCP is scared out of their mind about the the disease of democracy. So, there are tools that that Taiwan has to push back on the CCP. Let's talk a bit about what the CCP did in response to Pelosi's visit, because obviously there was some saber rattling, but then there was also some taking the saber out of the scabbard a little bit. Yes. I don't know if that, that works for the metaphor, but like what – yeah, save me from this. What, what happened? Okay. All right. So first of all, the saber-rattling uh, transition to uh, demonstrating uh, their capabilities, some of their capabilities uh, against Taiwan. Uh, and the exercise is not supposed to end until uh, my time tomorrow, uh, which uh, is the 6th of August. Um, so – so in general, most of the things that they've done have been done in the past, have been done in the past when there's not tension. For example, flying uh, in the air defense uh, um, identification zone, the ADIS, uh, the difference this time, they kind of crossed the line here, crossed the line there, but didn't go very far. They kind of went in and out. You know, that game where you, you put your foot on one side, they, they quickly move over, you know, capture the flag type thing if you touch touch a person over the line, then, then, they, then they're tagged. Uh, so they, they, they cross the line a little bit here and there, uh, but nothing grossly, nothing like, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 miles uh, beyond the line. They just uh, kind of crossed it, went back. So that's on the air side. Uh, also, interestingly enough, on the air side, they really didn't have a lot of aircraft up. Uh, over the last three days of the exercise, they had between 21 and 27 aircraft flying in, in that area. And if you recall, last year, there was a day or two that they had uh, over 50 aircraft flying in, in, flying on, on that day. So they really didn't show the full air power picture. Um, and some, some uh, analysts say that, you know, that doesn't bode well for them because they really, you know, 
flying 20, 20 to say 27 aircraft is a whole lot different than flying, flying 200 to 500 aircraft. If you're going to do a, you know, a raid on someplace. Um, so they really didn't practice their, their air force abilities th that much. Uh, so that's the air, air picture, uh, on the sea. Um, as you probably saw in some of the, um, news stories, there was, uh, around Taiwan, there were patches of areas where they were going to conduct exercises, but mainly, uh, launch miss missiles into those areas from mainland China. Uh, so the ships themselves uh, were in those areas, some of them to watch where the missiles landed. And there were a few ships that, again, crossed the line um, a little bit, uh, but not much uh, between uh, and the Taiwan Straits. So, again, on the Navy side, yes, they had more ships out. Uh, they were more active, um, but they really didn't do a whole lot Navy-wise. Again, not hundreds of ships, you know, so maybe a few dozen. Uh, now underwater, uh, we don't know, but we do know that there were, there were sub, there were, there were, um, PLA Navy submarines, uh, in the Taiwan Straits. We don't know wh what or where they did, but it's quite possible that the, uh, um, Taiwan, Japan, U S intelligence, uh, systems that are out there were tracking those submarines. So that might've been useful for the U S and, and Japan and, and Taiwan to watch where those submarines go, because perhaps during the next time, if they do an invasion, they might go in the same place. So that's the other part of this whole story is that China does all this uh, military maneuvers uh, and it's a great opportunity for everybody to watch what they do and, and analyze what they do, because they might do the same thing during wartime or uh, and during an invasion. Um, so that's the uh, uh, submarine part. Missile part, uh, again, according to reports, uh, mainly from uh, Japan, uh, the Japanese MOD reported that there were 11 missiles that were launched from mainland China into different uh, zones around Taiwan. Uh, and there were possibly up to four, maybe more of those missiles overflew Taiwan. But surprise, surprise, they didn't shoot them down. Why? Well, first of all, the altitude was way too high for them to be shot. If you recall, Japan has suffered the same thing against uh, by the by the North Koreans. The North Koreans have fired some missiles over Japan, and those shots are so high up that that you can't shoot those missiles down because they're literally in outer space uh, and they're moving very fast. Taiwan didn't shoot anything. Again, if you if they had shot something, uh, it could have given away their capabilities. It even though they couldn't hit it. Um, and also if they missed, it might not, not have been a good uh, PR story. Uh, and I don't think they would have missed, but I, the main reason was the, the missiles were too high over Taiwan to shoot them down and they weren't going to land in Taiwan. If they were going to land in Taiwan, I, I, I honestly believe that the, the Taiwanese um, uh, indigenous missile defense uh, systems, as well as they have Patriot uh, could have shot down those missiles if they had landed in, Taiwan. So that's the missile area. In the space area, uh, there was some stories that uh, the U.S. had done some, uh, again, I, I can't confirm this because I, I don't know for sure, but there was some stories that the U.S. had jammed some of the Chinese satellites so that they couldn't get a real picture of what's going on in the area. Um, I don't know if that's true. On the, cyber, on the cyber side, there were some cyber attacks in Taiwan. 
uh, 7-Eleven was hit. But again, this is not unusual. Earlier this year, uh, there were some attacks on some banks. Um, so the cyber war is really continuously going on all the time. It's not, it's not new. Yeah, I'm upset about the 7-Eleven attacks because I love Taiwan 7-Eleven. Uh, I don't think the 7-Eleven tax uh, uh, really disturbed their business. So you could have gotten your coffee if you needed it at 2 o'clock can, in the morning. Can you still get papaya milk? <laughs> I'll look. I'll look, I'll look. All right. Because that's that's really personally important to me. Okay. Um, and I, and again, none of the attacks were um, uh, did any permanent damage. And, and none of the attacks caused any kind of physical uh, outcome. So those are the you know, typical military areas that, that uh, so far that, we, that we've seen uh, reported uh, that's gone on so far. Do you think that, uh, you know, you mentioned that missiles overflew Taiwan. Like, do you think that any of this is like an escalation of what the Communist Party has done before, or is it kind of par for the course? Okay, so uh, you remember... Uh, when uh, Speaker Newt Gingrich came to ta Taiwan in the late 90s, there were some missiles that flew from uh, Hainan uh, Island uh, towards Taiwan. And some people say that, that, that one or two of those missiles overflew parts of uh, Taiwan. If that's true, then it's not a big deal. It is a big deal, though, that, that the target zones that they had set up, the Chinese, uh, the PLA had set up some some target areas on the other side of Taiwan. That's new. Uh, so in terms of an escalation, yes, the, the, also the target areas were very close to, to Taiwan. Uh, in fact, one or two of them kind of brushed into the 12-mile uh, territorial waters, not just the, the EEZ. Um, so uh, that's an escalation. Um, so there were certain things that would be considered an escalation, uh, from previous from previous times, uh, and and I believe that uh, this was planned way in advance. The PLA knew exactly what they wanted to do, and they were it, it was it was waiting for an opportunity. Uh, so I, I suspect that part of the uh, the direction that Xi Jinping gave the the PLA was, if you need to uh, invade Taiwan, what do you need to practice? And they probably laid out what they need to practice, and they said, okay, make it happen. And so when Pelosi's visit gave them justification for doing this exercise, uh, they were practicing things for an invasion. And uh, a lot of discussion uh, on the military side, in the military blogs and Twitter and all, all the social media and uh, regular media, uh, noted that these uh, areas looked like the PLA was preparing uh, for a blockade um, or some kind of a, a means to prevent ships and aircraft from flying into Taiwan during a crisis, uh, which would make sense. And that's one of the five or six scenarios that the PLA has in their writings talked about in terms of Taiwan. So uh, most most military analysts uh, have been saying that that what the PLA practiced was a blockade type scenario. Now, blockade officially is between two countries. And so the PLA would never say that this is a blockade. Uh, it's more of a uh, attempt to control a renegade province. But we would call it a blockade because it's preventing 
let's say, U.S. military aircraft from flying into Taiwan to resupply them with weapons, uh, which could be a problem if there is a blockade and if uh, the U.S. doesn't have the wherewithal to uh, push the limit and try to bypass the blockade. So a blockade is a, is, a, is a problem because one of the arguments that uh, the Biden administration is trying to push onto Taiwan is that Taiwan should prepare for an invasion. If, ta- if the PLA conduct a blockade against Taiwan, none of the weapons that the, that the Biden administration is trying to sell a Taiwan have any effect on a blockade. Ships farther than 100 kilometers away or more than 75 kilometers away can't be hit by a harpoon missile because the harpoon missile can only go 75 kilometers, et cetera, et cetera. So all the weapon systems that they're, that they're trying to sell are, are, are focused more on an invasion and not a blockade. And so this, uh, so getting back to our conversation about, uh, you know, what does Taiwan need uh, to protect itself? It is defending themselves in all different kinds of scenarios, not one scenario. And the Biden administration is trying to sell one scenario. Do you think that the, because when you're talking about this blockade, it kind of reminds me of what the Chinese Communist Party, what the PLA has done in the South China Sea, where they start off with saying, okay, well, we're going to stop you from coming to the Scarborough Shoal. We're just going to make it so that no fishing boats that are not Chinese can come here. Um, And then they did that in the, Paracel Islands, and then slowly they started building up these artificial islands after they had blockaded, kind of like, you know, prevented other ships from coming into the area. So is there a scenario where they could, instead of doing a like massive invasion, or uh, even like start off with like a big blockade, just like start kind of positioning themselves in the waters around Taiwan just kind of like do that whole salami slicing type of thing that they've done in other areas. Is that a concern? Okay. So yes, it's a concern. Um, so that's one of the five scenarios is this idea that maybe they would, as you know, there's islands, uh, Taiwan has islands close to China, Kinmen, uh, islands, for example, are very close to, uh, mainland China. So yes, if, for example, if they surrounded those islands, uh, even far, as far as the Pengu Islands, which is about halfway between Taiwan and, and, uh, and mainland. Uh, yes, th- those would be problematic. Uh, the, the reason why I don't think that's uh, a, a good strategy for them, because it, it shows their hand. It shows, uh, and it could cause the United States and other countries to uh, ramp up support for Taiwan and gives it gives. Um, Taiwan the opportunity to get re, uh, reinforcements and, and supplies. Um, but you, uh, I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's definitely a possibility, but I'm just saying that's, I, I'm providing uh, a counter, uh, a counter to that idea. But uh, in terms of Taiwan uh, building a, uh, a blockade, let's say a sea blockade at first, and then maybe an air blockade uh, that can be done, you know, and especially with their missiles, uh, from mainland that could strike uh, anywhere around Taiwan. Uh, that means sh- all ships uh, at sea uh, would be at risk. In addition to that, if they have their navy out there uh, floating around um, and uh, warning uh, ships away. Uh, and also during the t- the, this exercise, uh, uh, I think today there were 51 flights that were uh, rerouted 
that were that were either taking off or coming to Taiwan because of this exercise because the planes couldn't fly through. Uh, so this this exercise uh, did have an effect. It's it is unusual uh, in, in the fact that airplanes had to be rerouted, um, and also it affected Japan. Japan was very uh, upset because some of the uh, areas that uh, China decided to use as uh, exercise uh, locations crossed into Japan's economic exclusive zone. This wasn't just a Taiwan scenario. It was also a Japanese scenario, and the Japanese were very upset. But most press is not covering that aspect. Uh, obviously, in Japanese press it is, but the, most of the world is focused on the Taiwan uh, crisis. Um, but as you know, the Senate, Senate, Senate I, I can't pronounce it, Senkaku Islands. Sentaku. Sentaku. Or I, I always call them the Diaoyu Islands. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we know who the, the, the CCP guy is. Okay, we know who that guy is. All right, all right Matt, I, I got you. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, the, uh, the Japanese are very concerned about that because uh, the CCP claims those islands as theirs, uh, just like they claim the, all the uh, South China Sea. Um, and, you know, they've, they've drawn their nine dash line to include those islands, those Japanese islands. Um, uh, luckily, the Japanese have uh, and the U.S. have sent uh, military personnel to those islands to reinforce them, uh, to make a, a, a statement to the PLA. Um, and so this whole big picture that um, occurred um, makes the Japanese more uh, upset about China and question looking into their defense needs. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm hoping, I mean, I might be extreme, but I'm hoping that the Japanese uh, people realize that, you know, maybe they need to have nuclear weapons in Japan. Now, they could be U.S. nuclear weapons um, or some, some kind of combination. As you know, in Europe, we have nuclear weapons in Germany and other countries. Um, and um, so... Right now, uh, I think the Japanese public is concerned about China. Uh, the same goes for South Korea. Uh, South Korea uh, is concerned about North Korea and also China. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised in the, in the future if there's a shift in, in policy in that, in, the, in that arena. When so, you said that uh, the, like, the salamis last thing would be showing the CCP's hand in terms of like what they intend to do with Taiwan um, is practicing the blockade also showing their hand. And if so, how do you think that Taiwan, the U S Japan, these other countries should react to that? No, that's, that's a really good question. I, I, I'm not being facetious at all. I think that's a really good question. I think um, for a long time, the U S Japan, Taiwan, uh, haven't really thought through all those aspects of it. Um, so let me throw out the scenario for you. Uh, so we all know that when Russia invaded Ukraine, one of the things that Putin said was, if any foreign forces interfere in Ukraine, I, can, I, I reserve the right to use basically nuclear weapons. That's basically what he said, right? The commander of United States Strategic Command said that he believes that Xi Jinping will use the same logic when or, and if they decide to invade Taiwan. Now, if they for, for the same scenario, if um, the PLA say the same thing for the blockade, uh, 
what is the U.S. going to do? Are they going to try to, you know, break it? Uh, and uh, are they going to risk that? Are, are, are we going to play dice with the with the China last threat scenario? You know, we, we talked about earlier, you know, this is the last time we warn you uh, and risk uh, nuclear war. Or are we going to or, uh, or are we going to, you know, play uh, play chicken and say, no, they're not going to do it. And we're going we're to try to, you know, uh, resupply Taiwan. So. I also think that the blockade is going to be an interesting scenario because, you know, China is dependent on on uh, on many things from Taiwan. It's not just a island with a bunch of uh, you know wild natives. Uh, I mean, Taiwan has lots of sophisticated uh, technology that they sell the rest of the world, uh, including uh, you know computer chips. So, the scenario of a blockade would have to be uh, modified to allow certain things to get in. And certain things not to get in, and same thing, certain things to get out, and certain things not to get out. So that it would be uh, pretty complicated for them to to manage that, and they're at, and the and the PLA and the CCP have to deal with that. On the other hand, the U.S., Japan, and China, Taiwan need to figure out how to deal with this blockade scenario. Um, and I'm not so sure that's been fully fleshed out. So what did the U.S. and Japan and other countries and Taiwan learn from uh, the PLA's military exercises that they did sort of in response to Pelosi's visit? Uh, that's a good question. I, uh, so since their, their profile that the PLA did was seems to be blockade related, um, uh, they kind of showed their hands. For example, uh, during the exercise, they communicated with their ships, with their airplanes, um, with their uh, headquarters back in mainland. So a lot of that information uh, was being is being examined and, and analyzed by the West, and uh, to understand how they com- do command and control of their of their uh, military. And once the U.S. and other countries understand how they do that, then that command and control can be manipulated or destroyed or or, or jammed or denied. Uh, for example, so each time the, the PLA does something, you know, they might be thinking that they're, you know, being aggressive, but they're also exposing themselves to watchful eyes that are looking at what they're doing. Another interesting uh, occurrence was that there were some reports in the, in the Chinese press that the J-20, which is their stealth aircraft, was flying around. Now, Again, it wasn't uh, it wasn't noted much uh, in the in the Taiwanese press, but it's quite possible that the Taiwanese radars picked up that stealth aircraft. Of course, they wouldn't admit to it, but if they if it was flying around and the and the Taiwanese radar did pick it up, that is a, a weakness uh, that they might not even know about. So, if they decided to use their stealth aircraft against Taiwan, uh, now Taiwan has, for example, potentially a way to. Uh, they know what the profile is, or they know certain features of this stealth aircraft, and they can they can take it out if they need to. Um, I mentioned the submarines earlier uh, that probably the the PLA submarines were probably detected and, and monitored. Um, also, the the missiles when they fired the missiles, uh, first of all, um, the the location where those missiles were fired from um, gives information about in the future where they might be fired from in the future. Um, so if, for example, Taiwan wanted to counter those missiles, if, if, if things started heating up and, and missiles started landing on Taiwan, well, 
Taiwan also has missiles that can reach out and touch the mainland. So they could do counterstrikes against those locations where those missiles were from. Uh, and so by knowing where some of those missiles uh, came from this time around and where they could come from in the future, that gives away uh, an idea f uh, for the Taiwanese military, as well as uh, should the U.S. and other countries get involved again, these, this information is useful. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it's always good to, to, to watch what the, the PLA uh, did. Another thing that uh, besides the command and control is to see how, let's say, the ships uh, maneuver and how they um, communicate with each other. Um, uh, so between ships, between aircraft is another thing. It's not necessarily command and control, but it's also um, uh, procedures of how they uh, maneuver in this kind of space. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the Air Force didn't really show up with a lot of aircraft. Uh, well, that could show that maybe they don't have a good command and control system that's effective with lots of airplanes. So they might be this might be a weakness they, they might expose uh, during an invasion is they can't handle a lot of aircraft, whereas Taiwan has uh, several hundred fighter aircraft, and that might be an advantage for, for Taiwan. Hmm. I mean, it, you know, you mentioned... Putin's uh, nuclear threat, and I mean, do you, is is Putin's nuclear threat? Do you think that's the reason why Western countries haven't actually sent their militaries in to defend Ukraine? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it was a NATO decision. I think it was probably pushed on NATO by the U.S. Uh, it might, it might again, it might be a bluff, but you know, we've we've believed the bluff. And so we're, you know, we're not, we're not doing what Putin, we're doing what Putin asked us to do. Right. But isn't that then the problem? I'm not arguing for nuclear war because that would be horrible. But here's my question. Like if, if the CCP threatens nuclear war, if the U.S. were to defend or any country were to defend Taiwan, then like, you basically are handing the CCP control of the situation, right? Correct. Correct. And so does the U.S. have to risk nuclear war in order to stand up to that? Or is there some other way to handle it? Well, first first is it might be a bluff. They, they might not be willing to conduct nuclear war. As you probably know, the Chinese don't really have that many nuclear weapons right now. They have about 300 plus nuclear weapons. And, and then if you include their submarines. So, I mean, one nu nuclear weapon can make, can, can, can make a bad day uh, for anybody, but uh, compared to 3000 plus that the U S has. So, you know, uh, for now, uh, and as you know, the, the, the PLA uh, rocket forces, strategic rocket forces are building uh, silos in central China 300 or so silos with uh, missiles that could have up to two, uh, three or three plus warheads. So that's another thousand that they could they could have in, let's say, five, five or so years. So uh, right now, I don't think nuclear war is in is in is in play uh, if China were to threaten today, um, because we would we could we could, uh, you know, pretty much make their make a bad day for them. So um, 
And I don't know if, if China is, is willing to risk nuclear war. But on the other hand, you know, we live in a democracy. And if, 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 if our, the U.S. population feels that strongly that they don't want to risk a nuclear war with China and, you know, they don't want to risk uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, or other West Coast cities, although some people wouldn't mind them going away, uh, you know, it's, or Hawaii, for that matter, uh, Guam. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a political decision, but with the CCP, they don't need to worry about what the population thinks. Uh, so, um, again, I think this is a, a, a challenge that we're going to have to face at some point in the future. Yeah. Sorry. Is, I don't understand the difference between having a hundred nuclear warheads and having 10,000 because okay. all, all it takes is a few, right? I mean, you, you're not going to use a hundred anyway. Let's say China right now can't reach the eastern the eastern seaboard. Let's say they can't reach the eastern seaboard. So let's say west of Colorado is accessible to them. Um, whereas we can wipe out every single city, you know, in China. Uh, so, you know, as as a leader of the CCP, does he want to uh, be the guy who uh, gets to basically cause the destruction of his entire country or versus only affecting a small portion of the U.S. Uh, you know, I hate to be blunt, but, you know, I, I don't think that he would do that. Um, the, the idea that nuclear war is so abhorrent, it, it is true. But on the other hand, we lived through it during the Cold War. And um, luckily... The Soviets and, and the Americans developed uh, a concept where they agreed basically not to attack each other. I don't think we're there yet with China because China believes that Taiwan is part of their country. And so they feel strongly about it. Now, if they were invading Japan, which we have an alliance with, or if they were invading Australia, um, then they're... Their calculus, their justification to the uh, to do it is weaker, um, and this is what we talked about earlier: is the hype that Taiwan, that the, the nationalists in, in in China want to take over Taiwan is sort of a, a uh, an end of a era where Mao and Chiang Kai-shek uh, were, you know, uh, fighting each other and. The, the taking over Taiwan would sort of be the final, the final act uh, of that history, and I believe that Xi Jinping uh, wants to be part of that act, and he wants to be equal to or greater than Mao. So he can't really do that unless he gets Taiwan. Um, so um, again, it becomes a calculus of, of, the, of, the, of the politicians who are in charge to decide what they want to do. Uh, and so far, I don't think Xi Jinping is in a position to do what he wants to do. But should he decide to do what Putin uh, threatened, it could cause pause for a uh, president of the United States to decide what to do. And the people have a vote uh, in that area. And we might decide not to not to question or not to take a chance with nuclear war with China. Well, I, I kind of don't know... Uh what's the right, you know, move in that case? 
right? Because if if you if you accept the CCP's threat, right? So my suggestion, uh, the move is now. The move is we should be resupplying, uh, we should be providing weapons and training. Uh, we should be exercising with the Taiwanese military. We should have them go train in, in the U.S. We should have them go train in Japan, Australia. Um, we should be doing things now to not only prepare them, but also to help deter uh, the CCP from thinking about doing something in the future. Uh, so the, the longer that they are delayed in making their decision to, to uh, invade or blockade or all the other options, uh, the better it is for Taiwan. Uh, what about non-military things? What should the U.S. and other countries be doing right now to support Taiwan? Well, first of all, um, uh, the U.S. and other countries should encourage uh, countries that don't have representatives in Taiwan to establish representative offices here. And as part of that um, uh, representation, they should also look into economic uh, exchanges uh, where the two countries can buy and sell things. Uh, this will help uh, Taiwan uh, to be less dependent on China and other countries be less dependent on China as well. Um, so that's that's one thing is is increased diplomatic relations. Now, I'm not talking about embassies. I'm not talking about formal formal uh, relations because, uh, you know, obviously uh, China might come down very hard uh, on those countries. But Opening up an, uh, a techo, uh, uh, an economic office, uh, economic and cultural office. Uh, kind of what Lithuania did. Yeah, Lithuania did a little more. They called the office Taiwan representative office. That was oh, the, okay, the, right. word, the, the word Taiwan was a problem. Instead of Taipei, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, second in the international arena, um, uh, more countries should encourage Taiwan to participate like we uh, there was a, a large number of countries that that were uh, that wanted Taiwan to participate in the World Health Organization. More countries should be involved in trying to uh, encourage Taiwan uh, to participate in many different organizations, not just the World Health Organization. Um, so all the all the, a lot of the UN organizations that have um, importance to Taiwan, um, which should be should should. Taiwan should hopefully become a member at some point, or at least an observer, which many non-countries uh, do. Um, I think that uh, um, diplomatically uh, and uh, the press should try to show that Taiwan and Ukraine are very similar and really hit that that hard that point hard, uh, because uh, obviously the PRC doesn't like that because they want to make it sound like Taiwan is not like Ukraine because Taiwan is part of China and it should not be treated like Ukraine. Uh, so that's a sort of a propaganda point. Um, so on the um, economic side, um, uh, I think uh, more trade, uh, as I mentioned before, more trade should be looked into, but also uh, whenever uh, the PRC uh, uh, does some kind of economic boycott, I think countries should uh, uh, get together beforehand, before you know, before something happens, and already have a procedure in place to deal with uh, an economic boycott that China might impose on on a, on a specific country, like Lithuania, as you mentioned. Uh, the EU is doing that. For example, uh, uh, they're planning in the future if something happens, then they'll they'll kind of work together. Um, but that's not 
international. That's not beyond the EU. So if more countries became part of that concept, I think that would be very useful because it would diminish what effect the CCP has on, on uh, its coercion in the world. I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, we should make the CCP pay for its actions, the actions that are disruptive, um, you know, whenever they try to make uh, a country or a company or a person kowtow to them. I mean, those are things that we should uh, uh, we should impose sanctions against them for doing those kind of things. And right now, we're in, it seems to me we're in a reactive mode. We're not really being proactive. So I think that's another area that we need to think about is how to counter their actions when we know that they are going to continue doing this. I mean, even now during this uh, this crisis, so to speak, um, China has imposed some more trade sanctions against Taiwan. And, uh, you know, Taiwan is dealing with it and then some countries are helping them out. But there should be a unified or a larger number of countries uh, ready to step in and to, to counter these these actions. Now, you're suggesting joint military exercises with Taiwan the way that the U.S. does it with Japan and South Korea, Australia, and so on. Um, Correct. Obviously, the, it would be extremely valuable uh, in terms of defense to have U.S. generals have that experience working with Taiwanese generals and have the militaries cooperate so that the, the two militaries, militaries could actually work together uh, in a war scenario. But here's the question, like as valuable as that is, would that be, like that's that's obviously crossing a new line. So do you think that would trigger the PLA to invade Taiwan or do you think that they would just do more saber rattling? So uh, as you probably know, last year, uh, the administration admitted that there were military, US military personnel in Taiwan conducting training so the training is going on, and uh, but it's like PLA a few dozen did, Marines, right? It's not like a huge force. Sure, a few dozen Marines this year, maybe a few hundred this uh, this coming year, maybe a few thousand uh, a couple of years from now. The thing is, is that you know, just like cooking a frog, we need to we need to progress, we need to move forward, and we need to need to increase. Uh, one of the things that we could do, for example, is you know we have all these uh, ships in the area. Uh, we could do an exercise. Uh, when we're in a position uh, to deter PLA action. Uh, so they can't do anything while we're here. And maybe we should uh, make a permanent presence nearby. Uh, for example, we could have a missile, uh, one of our Aegis uh, missile uh, defense cruisers, uh, destroyers off the coast of Taiwan, doing uh, what they call a picket, going around uh, nearby, uh, providing missile defense information uh, to Taiwan. There are things that we can do that are defensive and helpful and maybe a little less uh, exciting for the PLA, but we need to be doing more and more and more. Uh, and I, I don't see uh, the, the increase being very much. And secondly, I don't see the, the, the Biden administration uh, focusing in on um, actions that are other than um, training the Taiwanese military to defend their country on the land of Taiwan. I don't see a whole lot of training of, uh, you know, fighting at sea, fighting in the air. Uh, although we do train their air force in Arizona, for example, uh, their F-16s, their pilots go to Arizona and get training there. So we already are doing some of this. Uh, and, but I think we can do a lot more. 
um, and, and sending Taiwanese military to get uh, joint training in the United States, how to work with the U.S. forces. You know, it could be a handful this year. It could be do two dozen next year. We can keep on going. Uh, but we're, we seem to be uh, kind of trying to, you know, not ruffle, not ruffle uh, feathers, just like just like it's more difficult for 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 the for the Japan and Taiwan to deal with the blockade. We need to do things that are difficult for the PLA to deal with, for example, training. Right. So you're suggesting that the U.S. basically do salami slicing. Yes. Exactly. Well, we're going to have a lot of salami on both sides then. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for, this, for your time. And hopefully uh, this conversation has been helpful. Helpful, uh, a little bit terrifying, um, but also hopeful. So I think we've, we've got all of that in our, in our salami sandwich. It's a journey. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. I'll, I'll, look up, I'll look up your papaya milk uh, drink in the 7-Eleven when I go out next time. Oh, yeah. No, that's, that, that's very important. You'll, you'll enjoy that. Or, or maybe you won't, like if you're lactose intolerant or something, then, then don't do it. But at least you'll know whether they have it. Great. Thanks again. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Bye. Uh, you know, times like this, I really miss Chris because he would do the wrap up so much better. I mean, he'd probably be making some joke about Final Fantasy or, or salami slicing. So just like, let's pretend that he's making some very hilarious comments. And then, <laughs> and then I say something like really stupid. And then Shelly rolls her eyes at me. And then we try to wrap up and- It all uh, goes downhill. It all just goes downhill really fast. Yeah. Like it's doing right now. It's actually perfect, Shelly. This is like watching someone narrate a movie script instead of- <laughs> It's it's really bad. You know, the, the, it, at least we've got the downhill fast part. Okay, yes. Uh, anyway, right, Chris, Chris will be back now. next time. So don't worry too much. Uh, on that note, thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Matt Ganesda. I'm Shelly Jong. And we'll talk to you next time.